Romans chapter 8 is going to break in at that well-known verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. That's all here, the Lord's Word. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. The Lord bless the reading of His Word for His name's sake. Would you bow just for a moment, please? Ask God to speak. Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, ere we open our mouths to declare Thy Word, We cry to Thee that Thou wilt open eyes, open ears, and open hearts. Apart from this ministry of Thy Spirit, nothing good, lasting, will be accomplished. It will be a vain exercise. But Lord, we believe that this will not be a vain exercise. We believe thy promise that thou wilt give the help of the Holy Ghost when he's needed to thy people. That thou wilt draw near to us. That there will be an opening of heaven, not just our hearts, but of heaven itself. And thou wilt give the needed blessing for the preacher and for the hearer. Tarry with us, our God, we pray. And show us wondrous things out of this book. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. 
struggles, 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 struggles. In spite of all the struggles that we have considered this past week during this conference, our present life, whatever problems, whatever heartaches, trials that we may be facing, however difficult the struggles, this life we're living right now as God's people is a good life. It's a good life. Our tendency when sorrows like sea billows roll is to think otherwise, that this isn't a good life. If it gets bad enough, we'll be like Elijah as he sat under the juniper tree and asked God to take his life because he didn't think it was worth living anymore. In his eyes, it was a bad life. He wanted out. But when Christ Jesus said in John 10 that I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly, he meant it. In his second epistle to Timothy, chapter 1, Paul wrote that by Christ's coming he has, quote, abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So however dark our lives, our homes, our churches may become at times, however severely Satan may buffet us, However sharp that thorn in the flesh may be, however much the wayward son may cause tremendous heartache, however much that battle with unbelief seems to be one that you lose and don't win, however much worry seems to overwhelm your soul, however often you feel that your tongue wasn't the holy tongue, However high the mountain of our sins may rise up against us, regardless of how many falls and failures that we experience as His people, nothing changes the fact that this present life for God's people is a good life. Think about what kind of life you would be living right now, if you didn't have this life, this abundant life that Christ gave you, think about the kind of life you would be living. You would still be dead in your trespasses and sins. You would still be a child of wrath. Your soul would be like the troubled sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. You would know nothing of spiritual joy. You would know nothing of the experience of Christ loving your soul. You would know nothing of what it is to repent over sin. Uh, uh, A sorrow, thank God, that you never want to get rid of until you die. One of those good sorrows. Such a change has been wrought in your soul that the Word of God says you are a new creature, literally a new creation. 
in Christ Jesus. Old things, the old life, that old life has passed away. Behold, all things in this new life have become new. Why, the fact is, even now, as far as the Lord is concerned, you are presently seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I know that sickness and struggles and disappointments, losses and crosses and storms have and will continue to sweep through your sky. But there is nothing that can ever, nothing that will ever, nothing that will take this eternal life from you. If you're saved, you have everlasting life. And everlasting means everlasting. Christ was dead and earnest when he said that he came in order that we might have an abundant Christian life. And that includes a more abundant life this side of heaven. We're not here. He didn't save us that we merely eke out a bare Christian existence day by day, but to experience more and more of the good life, of that abundant life here and now. Are you living the good life? Do you view your life like that? This is a good life. In spite of the troubles, it's good. But if I may borrow an old saying that I heard the first time from an Ulster man, the end is not yet, but the best is yet to be. Not only are we, have we come tonight to the end of this conference, which saddens me to a degree. But we have come tonight to a topic that deals with the end of our struggle. Maybe many of you were thinking, wondering, what struggle is he going to deal with tonight? Well, there was another struggle that I had prepared for, had planned for, but the Lord turned me throughout the week of the conference to something else. It's about the end of these struggles. What better way could we end a conference that deals with so many struggles than to deal with that which ends them forever? It is the great end for which we were saved in the first place and the great end to which every child of God is destined. I draw your attention to that phrase, that little phrase at the end of verse 30, them he also glorified. There's a chain here. He chose them, he called them, justified them, glorified them. Everything is so certain, it's like past tense. It's done as far as God's plan is concerned. So is the glorification of his people. Them he also glorified. 
So in this final message, I want to deal with the subject of glorification, the end of all our struggles. The end of all our struggles. Notice in the first place with me the conformity in our glorification. The conformity in our glorification. Glorification is, it's about that event when we will be finally and fully and forever conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In its strict theological sense, glorification does not take place at the time of death. The saints in heaven have not been glorified yet in that sense. Sinless they are. Safe and secure they are. How happy they are. But they haven't been fully glorified. The best is yet to be. Glorification is that act of God where all of His people are conformed perfectly to the image of Christ, both in body and in soul. It's not soul only, both in body and in soul. The saints in heaven don't have bodies. You may have heard some wishful thinking as people talk about their loved ones that have gone on before, but they don't have bodies. They don't have hands, they don't have feet that can walk, legs that can walk. They are disembodied souls. Their bodies are in the grave. It hasn't been joined with the soul yet. They have understanding. From what we read in Scripture, they can see, they can communicate. Much like the angels who don't have bodies, physical bodies. But they can see and they can move and they can communicate, understand. According to Philippians 3, Paul states that when Christ shall come again in His glory... He shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body. That's glorification. The changing of our vile bodies like unto His glorious body. He expands on this in 1 Corinthians 15, that resurrection chapter I'm sure most of you know quite well, where he says that when Christ returns, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Only then will that happen, when Christ returns. Then we which are alive and remain, our bodies will be changed if we're still around when that happens. And that soul that has been in glory will be, well, sorry, we're talking about the dead now. They join, but now it's body and soul instantaneously made like the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer vile, immortal, 
never dying again, never sick again, never diseased again. That's glorification. It's the last part of salvation. A perfect soul that's been united to a perfect body. It's perfectly now in Christ's image. He took upon himself our humanity. He had a body. We're going to be like him in body and soul at our glorification. Now, secondly, the centerpiece of our glorification, the focal point of our glorification, when that will take place, is the glory of Jesus Christ himself. That is the focus. It is the glory of Jesus Christ. I would remind you of what Paul said to the Colossians of of Christ. He said this, he wrote this, that in all things he might have the preeminence. All things, and that means in our glorification, Christ is going to have the preeminence as He must have in every aspect of salvation, whether it's our being chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, whether it's that regeneration of the Spirit of God where the life of Christ is given to us, whether it's conversion and repentance where we turn from sin and what do we do? We go to Christ, He's the object of our faith, whether it's justification where we get His righteousness and He takes our sin upon Himself, or whether it's sanctification, where what's happening? We are being made more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to glorification, it's all about His glory. I, I think there is a mistake that's often made, and I imagine it's unintentional, but made nonetheless in the thinking of so many of God's people when it comes to salvation and all of its acts, aspects. And that is to view the gospel and the salvation that comes through the gospel as something that really is primarily about men. While it's obvious that salvation must deal with the salvation of men, I want to remind you that the main reason that sinners are saved is that Christ might be glorified. That's why you got chosen and others were passed by. It was that Jesus Christ might be glorified. Everything that has happened regarding your salvation is primarily that He might have the preeminence in all the glory. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, twice he makes this statement. He says, we're chosen, we're saved, we're adopted, and accepted in the beloved. Why? Why? Listen carefully. To the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise of the glory of His grace. He writes a few verses later, He does all this that we should be to the praise of His glory. That's Jesus Christ. The glory of His grace. If you have been... Uh, Throughout this conference, at least a number of the services, you will know that the grace of Christ has been preeminent. As we have looked at the struggles, we've been brought time and time again by the gospel to the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ. That is the focal point. 
That's what it's all about. Look at the grace of Jesus Christ, how glorious it is. And that's what's going to happen on our glorification. When He comes in all of His glory, I'm almost reticent because we hear those words so often and they can just roll not only off our backs but off our hearts. But there is coming a day and it will be a glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. And when we are changed and our bodies are changed, it's all going to magnify His grace. You want to know why the Lord stepped into our meetings night by night? And why He spoke to you about your struggles? Whatever, maybe there was one meeting in particular that you felt God spoke to you about that personal struggle in your life. You want to know why that was going on? Yes, it was to benefit you. Yes, it was to challenge you. Yes, it was to comfort you as you struggled. Yes, it was to give you hope. But you want to know what the ultimate reason is? That as you take those truths on board, that you will live a life that would bring more glory to the grace of Christ. That's why we're here. To glorify our God and His grace. We can get caught up in focusing upon how we feel, what we like to feel or not like to feel. But whatever it is, brothers and sisters, this whole conference, the whole preaching, all the sanctification and the eventual glorification is about glorifying Christ and His glorious grace. Don't forget that. It's all about His reputation. It's all about what people think of Him. Not as much about what people think of you. If you're concerned about what people think of Christ more than anything else, your reputation will be taken care of. It's all about His name, being glorified, uplifted, sounded abroad. It's about His work. It's about His sorrow. It's about His pain. It's about His suffering. It's about His victory over sin and death and hell. And when we come to this matter of being glorified, we must never think of it apart from the glory of Christ. I want to tell you that when when that day comes, whenever it is, when we are finally glorified, the glory that will consume our thoughts, our heart, our mind, is, is, is not our own glory, not even glory itself, but it will be the glory of the Lamb. What's the new song that we're going to be singing with that myriad and myriad and myriads of the saved. What's the new song? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and glory and honor and riches and blessing. That should teach us something. 
That's heaven. That's the glorified. And what are they singing about? What's the song that thrills their souls? They're all in unity. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And folks, you, you, you get a little more taste of heaven on earth. Since that's how heaven is going to be, you get a little more taste of heaven on earth when the glory of the Lamb is your focus. Don't you know that even the struggles that God has appointed for your life is about the glory of the Lamb? Have you ever looked at them like that? You're experiencing a wayward child or children, aren't you? It's so painful. But do you not know that through that, God is changing you so that your life might bring more glory to him? That thorn in the flesh you wish would go away? It's all about using it that your life might redound more to his glory because that is our chief end. That's why we're here in this world. That's the good life. That's the good life. The more you do that, the more you live the good life. The more you focus upon your own world, your own sphere, your own things, the less you glorify the Lamb, the less you live the good life. It's very true that even the damnation of the wicked will be glorifying the God. In solemn verses in Revelation 19, verse 1, And after these things, John says, I saw, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are His judgments. For He hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of His servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia! And, and, her smoke rose up forever and ever. That is the smoke of hell, the smoke of the damned ascending up. And what's going on? You might say at the edge of hell, the people of God are singing, Hallelujah! Hard for us to grasp that with our present way of thinking. But our minds, our understanding, our perception, our viewpoints are going to change when we are glorified. Yes, it is true. The damnation of the wicked, the damnation of the Christ rejectors, will be that which will bring glory to God. That being true, if by the damnation of the wicked, God is glorified. What in the world do you think it will be when the saints are glorified? What glory, what glory will fill heaven? Ah, but it seems so far off, doesn't it? 
Now we get so caught up in the world and thinking about the present and all of our struggles, we forget about there's coming glorification. There's coming an end to all of our struggles. I, I, I would say we need to think a little bit more about heaven and our glorification than we do. I'll say more about that in a moment. Because I don't want the conference to end with our focus on our struggles. I pray God it will end with our focus on the end of our struggles. Our glorification is all about His glorification, His being glorified. Romans 8, 17, Paul says, We're joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Isn't that great? The suffering, this time, down here, the struggling, the pain, all of that we've looked at. We suffer together that we might be glorified together. Our glorification will glorify Him. Notice, please, that we are predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son. Conformed to the image of His Son. That is our final glorification. But what was the final end? What does Paul say is the final end of that glorification? That Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn has the sense of priority, of supremacy. In other words, we will be glorified that Jesus Christ might receive all the glory. No, that's true. But our glorification centers upon Christ in another way. It will be the sight of His glory that will bring about our glory. The sight of His glory will bring about our glorification. Paul wrote to Titus of the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Literally, the manifestation of the glory. The manifestation of the glory. I want you to link that verse with what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. He is going to return, as we often say, in all His glory. We're going to see Christ in His glory. And for that reason, that will bring about the transformation in our image. Just by seeing Him come in all His glory. You ever thought about tying this to something that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? At the end of that chapter. He says, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, that is, the glory of Jesus Christ, are changed by beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord in His Word, we are changed. 
into the same image from glory to glory. It's gradual, but it's happening because we're beholding the glory of the Lord. What we are to be looking for as we come to this book is not only, and we've been doing it this week, because James makes us quite aware that this book is a mirror. And as we look into the mirror, we see what kind of men, what kind of women, what kind of believers that we actually are. But it must never stop there. You know, we don't have any problems seeing the faults that we've been looking, talking about those problems throughout the week and, and the sins that we commit as, as we struggle with all these things. But it must never stop there with seeing ourselves. The more we keep looking and looking into the Scriptures, we're looking for Christ. And when we see Christ and when we see the glory of Christ and the glory of His gospel, then guess what happens? There is a transformation that takes place. We behold His glory. It's like Moses when he went up to the mount, you know, to to get the law. And his face is shown. So he says that in 2 Corinthians 3. Because he was in the presence of God. He saw the glory of God and the face shone. Isn't that what you want? A shining countenance. Not always a frown. Not always gloomy. Not always miserable. Why aren't we? living more of the abundant life than we are? Why? Why isn't there more happiness? Why isn't there more joy? Why does it take, you know, just a little hiccup in life and we think the worst is going to happen? Why? Beholding The glory of Christ were changed. Seeing Him in His Word were changed. But, and it's a big but, our sight, our view of Christ's glory now is limited. We only see Him through His Word. And as the Holy Ghost takes the things of Christ and reveals them to us, We see Him. You can't see Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. You can't see Him when He's preached. You can't see Him when the Word is read. Apart from the Holy Ghost revealing Him to you. It's a supernatural work. But right now it's limited. We have glimpses. We see through a glass a mirror darkly. But there's coming a day when we shall finally and literally see Him. When when the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, upon the Mount of Transfiguration, got just a little glimmer of the glory of Jesus Christ, when He allowed them to see a faint, glistening and glimmering of the brightness of His glory, they fell on their faces scared to death. But when Jesus Christ returns, there will be nothing hiding His glory. 
And we will not be falling on the ground in dread. We will see Him face to face. We will look into... I have no idea what the Lord looks looks like. I, I am very eager to find out what His earthly body looks like, but that's not the point, is it? It is seeing Him in all His glory, looking into His face, and in that moment, transformed. Glorified. going to be a great day. Face to face I shall behold him. Far beyond the starry sky. Face to face, she wrote, in all his glory. I shall see him. I shall see him. By and by. You know, brothers and sisters, the more dealings the Holy Spirit has with us and the more dealings we have with the Word of the Spirit, the more we see Jesus. More of the looking upon His face and becoming like Him. The more we as they sang the other night, turning our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, the struggles of earth, the struggles that we've been talking about grow faintly dim in the light of his, what? Glory and grace. There is a devil that wants to keep your eyes earthward, that wants to keep your eyes focused upon yourself, always looking at the problems and the troubles and thinking the worst. Where Jesus says, lift up your heads, your redemption draweth nigh. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. It was over 40 years ago that I got married, and I remember my wife had seen her with her wedding dress on at the back door of that church. The doors opened, and there she was, coming down that aisle, and she never once took her eyes off me. She wasn't looking at her beautiful wedding gown, wasn't looking at the people around the left. Her eyes were locked on mine. That is a faint resemblance of what it will be like when we see Jesus in all his glory. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. For the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. That's the end of all our struggles. It's over. Hallelujah. The third thought I want to set before you is the characteristics of our glorification. What does it mean to be glorified? What's going to happen? 
aside from getting this new body that will never die and never be sick and all those wonderful things. Well, I, I, I can say that we will never really know what it's like until we're glorified. But there are numerous scriptures that give us a glimpse into this glorified state. Remember, folks, this is, this is what salvation is about. That we would be glorified in order that Christ might be preeminent, that He might be glorified. First, and again, I don't, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to tell you anything you haven't heard, but you need to hear it again especially if you think about your struggles right now. First, it will be characterized by the complete absence of sin. John meant something more than being a reflection of Christ when he said, we shall be like Him. That likeness is already there. Once you were regenerated by the Holy Ghost, once Christ's Spirit took up residence in your soul, a work began, and throughout the years, I don't care how long you've been saved, just maybe a, a week, a day, a year, 50 years, it makes no difference. The Holy Ghost has been just chipping away and chipping away and chipping away. And, you know, it's like the artist with the chisel and, and the piece of marble or whatever he's working with. It looks hideous at the first, but, you know, he just keeps working away and chipping away and chipping away. And you find out that, wow. And that's what the Holy Ghost has been doing with you and me. And that's part of why the trials have come. That's why they're there. That's why are the struggles. It's the Holy Ghost using these things to just chip away and chip away and chip away. Because what is he after? Transformation to the image of Jesus Christ. But that's not all that John's talking about. When it comes to our sanctification, our great problem, as we've seen this week, the struggle that we have is, obviously it is what Paul calls this body of sin. This body. Members, feet, eyes, ears, all of it, it's a body. And sin still dwells there. And sin, that sin principle that's in every child of God, makes use of the members. That little member being the tongue we looked at last night, the sin makes use of the members. And it says things it shouldn't say. And the eyes look upon things as a member that shouldn't look upon. And the ears hear things they shouldn't hear. And the feet take its places they shouldn't go. And the hands do things they shouldn't do. It's all there. This, this body, there's a body of sin here. As I mentioned in Philippians 3.21, when Christ appears, He shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. And He'll do that. He'll subdue all things. He'll subdue this sin in our bodies and give us a body that knows nothing about sin. It's hard to grasp that, isn't it, to have a body that's without sin. There's no sin principle within it. It's gone. The body of sin will be forever and, and finally destroyed. The old man will be forever eradicated, or if you like the old nature better, like that term, the flesh, whatever you want to call it. 
It'll be eradicated. A perfect heart, a perfect mind, a perfect will living in that body. So our confession state that in our glorified state we will be made, quote, perfectly and immutably free to do good alone. I like that word alone. Free to do good alone. No more ever again as we think about the change that will instantly come over us. We'll see Christ instantly changed. Body new, soul. Never again will we be troubled with doubts about our salvation. We won't have any more fears. No fears about tomorrow, no fears about finances, no fears about the family, no fears about the church. They're gone forever. No more, no more thorns in the flesh that have caused you so much grief. No more wayward children, no more unbelief. Never again will you have an inconsistent prayer life because you will not have a prayer life. There will be no need for a prayer life. No more worry. All you worriers out there, can you imagine? Forever? Not one thing worrying you? No more tongues used in a way that grieve the Spirit. What will you think about now in that new body? What will you want to do? What will you sing about? Because sing you will. No more half-hearted singing. Full blast. They'll all be perfect in heaven because they'll have a perfect body. You'll never be out of tune again. You won't have a screechy, scraggly voice that just irritates the person next to you. What must it be like to be there? Have you thought about it much? More than just a passing thought. Have you sat down and thought about what it will be like to be there? What will it be like to have a will and desires that want nothing but what is holy, nothing but pleases Christ? The battle with sin is over. And in short, in short, we will, for the first time ever, love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and might, and we will love His people the same way.
Sometimes Christians have a real difficult time just getting along with each other down here. Hmm, <laughs> what's that going to be like in glory? Those believers you didn't have a whole lot of time for. Well, everything's changed now. Hallelujah, brother. Glad to see you're here. What must it be like to be there? Let me just stop in here and make a little point of application. Don't you want more of heaven on earth right now? Don't you think if there's more of heaven on earth, there'll be more sweetness of fellowship between the Lord's people? There'll be more closeness in marriages and in families if there's more of heaven on earth? It so wonderfully has this power to deal with the division and the strife and the pride and the selfishness that always brings about the separation. Heaven on earth. It will also be characterized not only by the absence of sin, but the absence of sorrow. We read of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21, and the verse that has so been used of God in my own life after my wife's passing, and he shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. I was going to deal with the struggle of the lost loved one, and it's a struggle. And only those who have lost their loved ones, their spouses, or their children understand what that's about. Go easy on them, folks. Go easy on them. Don't think it, it's over in a month, or three months, or six months, or a year. You have no idea the kind of grief that comes when you lose a precious loved one. But the word promises there's coming a day when he will wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, thank God. There shall be no more sorrow, thank the Lord, and there shall be no more crying. Imagine that. No more crying. Never again will we cry. Never again will there a tear run down our cheeks. This world is a place of tears, a place of sorrow. Sorrows due to defeats and disappointments and dreads and discouragements and dryness and death and struggles. But when we are brought to glory... When we are glorified, we're going to be brought to eternal joy. I can't even get my head around it. Some of us in the church of God are more prone to being downcast. Asaph, the psalmist Asaph was like that. If you read his psalms, I think it's Spurgeon put it this way, he always sang in the minor key. of God's people are like that. 
Imagine never again a bout of depression. If you've never been depressed, you wouldn't appreciate that. Never again a gloomy thought. Never again will you become overcome with anxiety, worry, fear. We will, we will live forever on the mountaintop and never have to come down. Our hearts will be full of happiness for all eternity. And don't you know that the more of heaven you experience on earth, the more you taste of heaven, the happier you're going to be? It will be characterized by the absence of suffering. Neither shall there be pain any more, for the former things are passed away. With the entrance of sin into the world, there came suffering into this world. Genesis 3, Eve, in sorrow, in pain, thou shalt bring forth children. Working my way through college as an orderly or something along those lines in the hospitals, I've seen a lot of suffering. I've seen a lot of suffering. Tended to patients who were not able to find any relief for the pain by the medication they gave them. It just wouldn't touch it. It's a hard thing to listen to, you know. God's people have had to share in this suffering like the rest of mankind. They suffer all kinds of diseases with all kinds of pains. Many of them die in agony, just like the lost. It's not spiritual, it's pain agony. I've seen it. But in this eternal glorified state, there's not going to be any pain. There won't be any more migraines. My wife had a ton of them. No more body aches. No more cancer. No strokes. No seizures. No, not even a pinprick. The deaf will hear. The dumb will sing. The blind will see and the lame will walk. No wheelchairs in heaven. No walkers in heaven. All will be whole. Suffering, suffering, banished forever. Why? Because our bodies will be made incorruptible. There's something else that will characterize it. Our glorification. It will be characterized by the absence of self. The hymn writer Evan Hopkins wrote our problem with self in these words. My Savior, thou hast offered rest. Oh, give it then to me. The rest of ceasing from myself to find my all in thee. This cruel self, oh, how it strives and works within my breast. 
to come between thee and my soul and keep me back from rest. Self. Self's our big problem. We're by nature self-centered. By nature, whether we want to think it or not, we believe the world should revolve around us and our wants and our needs. We are just by nature selfish. But when we see Christ in His glory, we will be glorified and self is done. You will... Heaven will be full with selfless people. Selfless. Guess what happens when you have more of heaven on earth in your church? Or in your home? In your family? Guess what happens? Well, self begins to dial back. And husbands begin to think first about their wives and not about themselves and vice versa. The more we taste heaven on earth. Your your, your experience as a family of God in the church, now it becomes what can I do for the body, not what can the body do for me. I'm not coming so that everyone will pamper me or look at me or think upon me. I am coming looking out who I can serve, who I can do for somebody else in need. That's what happens when you get a little bit more of heaven on earth. But my, what will it be like in heaven when there is no selfishness? When you see the Lord, the old self will disappear. There won't be selfish pride. It won't be about me, 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 me. You will not be the topic of conversation. You will not make yourself the topic of conversation. You ever meet people like that? (laughs) You can't get a word in edgewise because all they want to do is talk about themselves. Won't be like that in heaven. You know what you're going to want to talk about? Christ. You know what you're going to want to do? I think. Maybe this is speculation. We'll find out one day. I think you're going to want to sit down with the angels who have never experienced redemption. And you'll want to tell them, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. And they'll thrill to hear the story. You'll want to talk about the Lord. You'll want to talk about the Lamb. It's no longer about you, it's about Him. Can I make the side application again and ask the question, what do you think it will be like when we get more of heaven in our hearts and our living? You'll want to talk about Him. It won't be the politicians, it won't be sports. It won't be all those things that are going to burn up one day. That will not be the focus of our conversation. It will be Jesus Christ.
the more you look upon him, you're changed from glory to glory. You'll want to talk about him. You will want to tell others about him. You know, it's the great, it's the great answer to soul winning, to evangelism, to reaching the lost. This is the key. It's not guilt. It's not guilt. It's seeing Jesus, beholding him, beholding his glory. And my mind comes back to the two men on the Emmaus Road. Their eyes are finally opened and they see Jesus. It was him. And what do they do? They run to tell the disciples, we've seen the Lord. Their hearts were burning. That's a little more of heaven on earth and that's in a perfect way what it will be like in heaven. What must it be to be there, folks? Positively, positively, not just the absence of things, but this eternal glory will be characterized by living forever in the presence of Christ. Living forever in the presence of Christ. What must it be to be there? Just to be near the dear Lord I adore will through the ages be glory for me. The hymn writer wrote, What have been your happiest times in your Christian walk? Reflect upon that. The times when you have been the happiest, the most content, the most satisfied. I'll tell you when. When the Lord has drawn near to you. You've been in that place of prayer with His Word, and you can't explain it, He just got close to you. The Lord was there with you. And there's nothing like it. Nothing. Not family, not friends. No experience like the Lord drawing near. You know, folks, we've had a little taste of that this week. Wouldn't you say? You think that holy hush in the meeting had anything to do with me? Men? It was God drawing near and saying, shh. Be still and know that I am God. I don't know about you, but it's been a little bit of heaven for me. These people pray before the meeting. The, the language over here is that God would stand at his elbow. And he's done that. It's wonderful. There's no experience like it. This side of heaven. You'd want the meetings to go on and on and on. Because there's nothing like the Lord drawing near to his people. What must it be like in heaven? What must it be like to live in his presence, to live near him continually? We've only gotten a tiny, tiny little taste. What's it going to be like when we're glorified? 
when you realize in a way that you've never been able to understand that you are in heaven because he wanted to spend eternity with you because he loved you. I don't get it. Why would he want to spend eternity with the likes of me? There's only one way, because he chose me in Christ. Finally, the consequences of our glorification. The truths we've been looking at tonight, yeah, they're all down the road, and, I, and I'm afraid that that is sometimes, it gets in the way because we don't, it's not right now, and we can only imagine about it, but you know there are going to be some immediate consequences if these truths are really embraced, and I mean embraced, taken in, and pondered, and prayed over. It's going to make a difference in your life and in mine. Number one, it will comfort the soul. Through all the struggles, all the struggles, whatever we've, we've gone through them, seven different messages, whatever they are, stop and sit down and think about, it's going to end one day, I'm going to be glorified, I'll be in glory, and it will all be over. Isn't that what Paul did? I'm not being carnal. Our light affliction, our light affliction, he called it, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Eternal weight of glory. And we won't be so overcome by the struggles. It's comforting. Comforts me to think about heaven and being glorified. When was the last time you had a good long season to think about glory? How long? How long has it been? Not just a passing word, not just a hymn you sing, but really, let me sit down. Let me open up the word and see what it says about glory, about heaven. Final thought, and I have been bringing this out throughout the message. Immediate result, it will challenge our souls. We're being challenged right now by the word of God and by the Lord himself to experience something more of heaven on earth now. This is how it's going to be in eternal eternity. So right now, it's our experiencing more of that here. It's here and now we must fight against sin and against self. We can't do a whole lot about the suffering and the sorrow and the struggles. But there is much we can do, much we can do to bring more of heaven into our homes, more of heaven into our churches, more of heaven into our own souls. We can do that by God's grace. I'll ask you again, is His grace sufficient for this? Is His grace sufficient in all the wonderful truths of glorification? Is His grace sufficient now for you and for me to enjoy more of heaven in our souls than we are currently? Are you going to tell me, no, it's not? Are you going to honestly tell me it's not enough? Are you going to honestly tell me that there's not enough grace for you, for you to know the changes, for you to know more, the sweetness of heaven, the sweetness of a selfless character, 
the sweetness of joy filling the soul? You know the answer to the question. You know it. Thank God the grace of Christ is sufficient to have more of heaven on earth. And if you believe that, it's going to change you. You're going to do things differently. I'm done speaking with Christians, but I do need to say a word to those here tonight who are not saved. You believers pray right now for those who are not. If you're lost, wherever you are, you're dead in sin. If you die in that state, your body will be buried. It'll be in the grave. But when Jesus returns, that grave will be opened and that body will be brought out. You'll be given a new body, but it will still be vile. It will never die. Your body will be immortal. It will be joined with your soul, and body and soul will be cast into hell. And you will be there forever, suffering where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There will be a resurrection for you. But you cannot begin to imagine how horrible it will be to be cast into the caverns of the damned, knowing it's never going to come to an end. Never. How are you going to deal with the miseries of hell forever? There's no let up. There's no light. There's no shortening of it. It's eternity. So the message of the gospel comes to you again tonight. It doesn't need to be your future. The gospel, the gospel is the gospel that saves. The good news is you don't have to die and go to hell. You don't have to face one day the wrath of the Lamb when he will tell his angels, bind, bind that one hand and foot and cast him into the lake of fire. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus still says, come to me and I'll receive you and I'll save you. I'll give you this new life and I will raise you incorruptible from the grave and you will be with me for eternity enjoying my heaven. Won't you come? Why will you stay? Why will you keep on when the invitation is there? I was a boy of 12 years of age when I sat on the back row of my church that I was raised in. 
gone to church all my life, heard all the stories. I could tell you the Bible stories. I heard them all. But that, mo- that morning, he preached the gospel. Simple. You're saved, you go to heaven. You're lost, you're going to hell. At the end, he said, is anyone concerned about their souls, about heaven and hell? Would you raise your hand? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I was shaking like a leaf because sins that I had committed that summer were just flooding into my mind. And I knew if I died that day exactly where I would be. I'd be burning amongst the damned and I would never get out. And I didn't want to go to hell. I was a sinner who deserved it, but I didn't want to go there. So my hand went up. I thought it was over, but it wasn't. He then said, I'd like all those that raised their hands to stay behind. I was scared to death, but I stayed behind. I was the only one. Back with that church, he led me to the Lord as a boy of 12. How glad I am I raised my hand. How glad I am I stayed behind. I wouldn't be here to this day. What about you? Maybe there's only one, just one. It was just me. I was the only one. Maybe you're the only one. Now, why don't you stay behind? It's far more important than the refreshments. You're dealing with your soul now. And that soul's going to live forever in heaven or in hell with the body. Only Jesus can do help the sinner's good. Come to him. He's waiting. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father, we thank thee for the word of the Lord. It will not return unto thee void, but it will accomplish the ends wherein thou hast sent it. We pray, our God, that thy people would be comforted and would be challenged by what we've heard this evening about our glorification. And that any soul, any soul that's lost without him, would be drawn by the Spirit to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.